Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Tracy, who's president and CEO of the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research based in Manhasset, New York in the USA. It's a great place and I've had the good fortune to collaborate with uh, that institution over the years. Kevin is uh, also a uh, professor at the Institute of Bioelectric Medicine at the same organization, as well as the Carter's Family Distinguished Chair in Medical Research. Kevin's career began at Boston College in Massachusetts, where he achieved a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry in 1979. Later, in 1983, Kevin went to Boston University, also in Massachusetts, of course, where he obtained his Doctor of Medicine degree followed by a residency in neurosurgery at Cornell University Medical College in New York City. Throughout his career, Kevin has received numerous honors and awards and has recently become a fellow of the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering and was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Freiburg in uh, in Switzerland. Kevin's a prolific author with, wait for it, over 400 scientific publications to his name. He's also an ardent inventor and has more than 120 patents, or as we would call them in England, patents. The good doctor also gives lectures nationally and internationally on topics as diverse as inflammation and sepsis, the neuroscience of immunity, and bioelectronic medicine. We're going to get into all those topics. And if that wasn't enough, Kevin also co-founded a non-profit organization called Global Sepsis Alliance, which supports the efforts of more than 1 million sepsis caregivers in over 70 countries. When not working on pushing back the boundaries of medical science, Kevin is a keen woodworker. I'm astonished that he has any time. You know, a few years back, I was working on a project with one of Professor Tracy's colleagues, Dr. Raj Narayan, and Raj recommended that I chat to Kevin to run some ideas by him. That brief told me I was speaking to a phenomenal intellect and also a delightful chap. And so it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Kevin Tracy to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here and great to talk to you again. Fantastic. So Kevin, let's start at the very beginning. What, who or what inspired you to become a doctor and more specifically to work as a neurosurgeon? I love origin stories. What drove you into your line of work? When I was five years old, my mother died suddenly of a brain tumor. And my grandfather, her father, was a professor of pediatrics at Yale Medical School in New Haven in Connecticut. And I remember asking him why hadn't his friend, the neurosurgeon, taken the tumor out of my mother's brain. And he told me that it was like a crab, like a spider crab, and its legs were extended throughout her brain. And I said, well, he could have pulled out the crab. And he said, well, if he had the legs, pulling out the legs would have damaged your mom's brain so much and she wouldn't have been who she was. And I said, well, somebody should do something about that. And he said, maybe you will. And that is the origin of, of, of the rest of my life's trajectory. It wasn't a straight path, but it was always a, uh, it, was always, it always gave my life meaning to think back on that. Just today, I was reading a an article about a gentleman who was a fintech um, inventor, started a company that did really, really well, and sadly, he got Ewing sarcoma, and he started a charity 
to help the the children of you know who's, who'd lost their parents and there's a quote from his little girl who said that she wanted to be a doctor when she grew up so she could help people like her daddy and wow what a powerful story kevin so let's dig into the meat of this you're, you're often considered to be the founding father of bioelectronic medicine tell those of our audience who don't know what it means what it means and how the arena has grown from being you know if you go back to the victorian era there were all sorts of pictures in magazines about you know electric shocks and going back into medieval or before ancient history people believed that the electric shocks of um, torpedo fish and such like could cure disease tell us the story what what is it and how does it do what it does well, there has been a lot written about electricity and medicine, and it's generated, frankly, a lot of confusion. And the, the basis of that confusion, historic confusion, has been a lack of understanding mechanisms. And so bioelectronic medicine represents a mechanism-driven, a, a science-driven strategy to make devices that replace drugs. At its simplest definition, that's what it is. Let me explain how that works. So let's start by what everyone knows is how you make a drug. So when you make a drug, you first pick a disease, and then having decided what disease you wanna cure, you identify a molecular mechanism or a target. And having found this molecular target, you then proceed to screen for other molecules that lock and key style will interact with the target, and then you pick the best one that has the best effect and is the least toxic, and you sell it. That's, that's how the drug industry has operated, the pharmaceutical industry, since the early 1900s. It hasn't changed a bit. What bioelectronic medicine is, is an alternate strategy. Bioelectronic medicine begins the same way. You pick a disease and you pick a molecular mechanism or target that would be the, the means of treating the disease. But rather than screening for new molecules in bioelectronic medicine, we use neuroscience to identify neural circuits in the body that can control the target in situ. And when you identify such neural circuits, if you can identify such neural circuits, you can build devices, biomedical devices, that use electrons to control the nerve to control the target and treat the disease. And it's a very powerful idea because it's scalable, it's hypothesis generating, it's testable, and it works. Uh, and again, it's gone from concept to being deployed to treat multiple diseases with multiple devices, both invasive and non-invasive. And we're going we're gonna to dig into some of that. So I think it was in the 1990s, you and your colleagues made a serendipitous discovery as to how the brain plays a role in inflammation. I'd like you to tell us that story, the monoclonal anti-tumor necrosis factor or TNF antibodies to treat septic shock that you developed. So Kevin, most of our audience are healthcare practitioners, but some are not. So please start with a definition of what septic shock is, the impact it has, and how these monoclonal anti-TNF antibodies work, and whether they hold promise in other conditions. When, when I was training to be a neurosurgeon at New York Hospital Cornell University Medical Center, as you said, in New York, um, we collaborated with colleagues at the Rockefeller University, which was basically next door. So the work that we did, it was a huge team of people. The work that we did showed that the, the molecules made by the immune system are, are both necessary and sufficient to cause lethal septic shock. At the time we were doing this work in the, in the actually it was in the 1980s, 
the, the belief, the dogma was that septic shock was caused because bacterial toxins like lipopolysaccharide directly caused the state of shock and, and tissue damage. And, and what, what, we, what we showed was that the molecules that caused shock were not directly attributable to the lipopolysaccharide. The lipopolysaccharide was turning on the immune system to make tumor necrosis factor or TNF. We then developed monoclonal antibodies against TNF. And this was done in a collaboration with a company Chiron in California. We administered these monoclonal antibodies to baboons that had lethal septic shock caused by the presence we had infused live E. coli into their bloodstream. And, and the results were astonishing. So despite the fact that the baboons had replicating E. coli in their bloodstream and the controls went into shock, the animals that we treated with monoclonal anti-TNF antibodies were protected against shock. So this was the first demonstration. We published it in Nature in 1987. And that paper was the first demonstration that monoclonal anti-TNF is a anti-inflammatory molecule. And uh, that, that, that catapulted what is today an enormous use of monoclonal anti-TNF antibodies in the clinic. It's used by millions of people. That class of drugs represents a significant percentage of the global pharmaceutical industry sales of all drugs. And it, it was a game changer to, to realize that you could treat inflammation by treating molecules or targeting molecules made by the body's immune system. First, it was TNF, and subsequently, as you know, there are now monoclonal antibodies and other inhibitors against other cytokines in the cytokine storm, like IL-1 and IL-6 and others. So it was fascinating to start my career as a, as a neurosurgery resident and see how quickly an idea could go from, from an experiment my colleagues and I did very quickly into widespread clinical use. It was amazing. And, and along the way, saving an awful lot of lives. So let's switch from that kind of biology to electrobiology, if you will. And you became interested in the vagus, the longest nerve in the body. It's all sorts of functions. And a number of years back, as I recall, folks established that stimulating with an electrical current could treat epilepsy and then depression. And now inflammation, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease that I spent a lot of my career as a surgeon looking after. Explain this to us, Kevin, and include the set point medical journey and a recent article about you and a lady with Crohn's. So inflammation and the vagus and electricity, the floor is yours. The idea to go after the vagus nerve as a target in bioelectronic medicine to treat inflammation started with an, with an accident in the lab. At the Feinstein Institute, we'd been very interested in making other molecules to inhibit the production of TNF and IL-1 and IL-6. Because the, as good as and important as monoclonal antibodies are to treat rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease, they're far from perfect drugs. They have black box warnings. They're very expensive. They have to be injected. They're invasive. And patients uh, only respond to these drugs up in some cases up to 40% of the time. So we were looking to make an alternative anti-inflammatory drug. And we hit upon this molecule we named 1493. And we, we worked on 1493 for many, many years and did clinical trials with it and knew a lot about its molecular mechanisms. But during the course of these experiments, we started injecting 1493 into the brains of rats and mice that had a cerebral infarction, a stroke. 
And the idea was that the drug in the brain would turn off the production of TNF in the brain. And it did do that. But what we didn't expect is that putting the drug in the brain also turned off the TNF production in the body of the mouse and the rat. And this was, this was baffling. There was no, no reason. There was no plausible, simple reason why a teeny amount of, of this molecule in the brain would suppress the production of inflammation throughout the body. And we hit upon the idea that maybe the signals were traveling in the vagus nerve. And to prove that they were, we repeated the experiment after cutting the vagus nerve. And in fact, when we cut the vagus nerve, the drug in the brain, 1493 in the brain, no longer blocked the inflammation in the body. And so that was that 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 meant clearly that there was electrical information in the vagus nerve that was controlling the cytokine response. And this was very surprising. There, we discussed it at lab meetings for months, and we and we poured over the literature trying to find other clues why this would be true, and found nothing. And so we we hypothesized that we had discovered the motor arm of a of a reflex, and and there was evidence, of course, that the vagus nerve could transmit information about the presence of cytokines in the body up into the brain and cause fever and cause anorexia and cause sickness behavior. And so we reasoned that those signals going up the vagus nerve were the sensory arc of a reflex, and we had discovered the motor arc. And like all reflexes, typically, the motor arc of a reflex acts in opposition to the incoming sensory arc. And so we proposed that the vagus nerve was part of an inflammatory reflex that controlled cytokine production by turning it off. And that led directly to a very testable hypothesis that we could electrically stimulate the vagus nerve to block inflammation. And we did that. And that was, we published that in nature in the early 2000s. And that, that launched this whole field because it worked. And, and set point and, and the recent article. What I wanted to do next was to develop a strategy to move this idea into clinical testing and hopefully into clinical approval and clinical use to treat diseases. Now, at that time, we knew a couple of things. We knew vagus nerve stimulation was safe. It had been approved by the FDA in the 1990s to treat epilepsy. Again, it only works in about 40% of the patients, but it was safe. It could be done safely. And to, to date, probably a quarter of a million people worldwide have had a vagus nerve stimulation implanted for the treatment of epilepsy and now other indications. So we knew it could be safely done. And now the question based on our data was, could we redeploy that technology, change the settings. We had, to, we had to figure out different electronic settings in the device to control inflammation in the body and treat diseases that were already being treated by blocking TNF with monoclonal anti-TNF, such as rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. In order to, to do an idea, a big idea like that, it really requires a company. And so working with my close friend and colleague, Shaw Warren from Harvard, we launched a company called Setpoint Medical. And the goal of the company was to develop a device to do the clinical testing of vagus nerve stimulation in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And that company was started in 2007. And over several years, uh, it's raised the sufficient capital to do several clinical trials. One of the clinical trials, we recruited a rheumatologist from Amsterdam called, named Paul Peter Tack who's a very respected, internationally respected rheumatologist who led the first trial, which we published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And that showed in, 
in patients with severe rheumatoid arthritis that treating them by implanting a vagus nerve stimulator developed by Setpoint Medical, that this could put some of these patients into drug-free remission. Now, now doctors don't like to talk about cures, but we now have seen some of these patients are several years status post the vagus nerve implant after having been taking invasive drugs and dangerous drugs for some, in some cases, decades, some of these people are now symptom-free and drug-free. So it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. And currently Setpoint is running a FDA approved breakthrough designated clinical trial in the United States, treating patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I think it's 250 patients. And hopefully that will be winding down later this year. And hopefully that will lead to some very important good news next year. And, and hopefully this technology will become broadly available in the coming year or two. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, the side effect profile of, of many ph- pharmaceutical agents, you know, any drug that has an action on the body has side effects. If it doesn't, it probably doesn't have a bi- biological activity in my, in my book. Going back to the inflammatory process, or staying with it, I should say, a few years back, you and your team decoded the, the, the nervous signals. You've hinted at that in, in your earlier discussion about the vagus, uh, alerting the brain about an inflammatory process going on. Can you educate us uh, a bit more, a bit, bit more deeply about that? The mechanistic and neurophysiological basis of the inflammatory reflex has, has launched a, a large amount of work. My own lab's been working on this uh, for 25 years. Uh, we've published dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed papers looking at individual aspects of the mechanisms connecting the incoming signals about the presence of inflammation in the body to the outgoing signals in the vagus nerve. And there's a couple of basic principles that that I really should, should uh, hit home here on. One is the inflammatory reflex is the tip of the iceberg. Um, my colleagues and I have for years been quick to point out that we don't think this is the only neural circuit that the brain uses to control inflammation. And we are convinced that there will be um, hundreds and perhaps thousands of neural pathways identified in the coming decades that control minute to minute individual aspects of immune responses in different organs and in different cells. So what's, what's so important about mapping something like the inflammatory reflex in exquisite detail is applying the principles of neuroscientific tools, which are incredibly powerful, genetic tools, which are incredibly powerful, and immunological endpoints or outputs, which have such direct relevance to to the clinic and to the treatment of patients. So when you bring those things together, you can ask very basic questions. So where where does the signals of of inflammation in the body originate that activate the vagus nerve and call it to action? Well, cytokines are produced during inflammation. Lots of molecules are produced, but we started by studying cytokines. You could study others. We showed that when you apply or inject a cytokine like TNF or IL-1 into an anesthetized mouse, you can literally record the electronic signature of information traveling up the vagus nerve from the body to the brain of the mouse. And by using machine learning and AI-like algorithms, it was possible to decode these signals in the time domain and identify features of the signal 
that correspond to TNF versus IL-1. And we're not exactly sure uh, how, how that works. We're still working on that. But the one very tractable hypothesis is that we're identifying in the time domain different groups of neurons that are firing together, indicating that the neurons responding to TNF are different than the neurons responding to IL-1. And, and some of this has to do with presence or absence of cytokine receptors, but some of it has to do with other features we don't fully understand. But the importance of that is that the arrival of this electric information, if you will, or electronic information from the vagus nerve in the brain is a way of informing the brain about the presence of either TNF or IL-1 in the body. It's a, it's a staggering kind of insight. There's been, there's been focus for decades on the role of cytokines producing sickness behavior. And almost all of that work was looking at the role of the cytokines interacting through the bloodstream, crossing the blood-brain barrier, through openings in the blood-brain barrier, or other humoral circulating mechanisms. And what, what this work calls attention to is the fact that nearly every cell in your body is innervated. Nearly every cell in your body is within shouting distance of a sensory nerve. And your, your sensory nervous system is tracking your immune system through these signals, in this case, inflammation. But it's quite likely that the sensory nervous system is reporting the status of other immunological activities every millisecond to the brain. I, I like how you describe that. Every cell is listening. It, it, it really creates a, a narrative that inherently makes sense and you know i said at the beginning of, of this this component that the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body and it innovates so many organs what else can we do with this i mean i remember the work a little bit off topic but um i think it might have come out of sweden there was a correlation between people who had had vagotomy and i as a I was a surgeon working in the abdomen, you know, cut my teeth doing um, truncal vagotomies, selective vagotomies, highly selective vagotomies, and discovering that there seemed to be a link, I'm sorry, a correlation between vagotomy and Parkinson's disease. The people who'd had vagotomy didn't have as high an incidence of Parkinson's disease, suggesting that maybe something in the abdomen was climbing up the vagus nerve and getting into the brain. Absolutely. And as you know, that's, that clinical observation has spawned in the, recently, in the last decade, a tremendous interest in molecular mechanisms by which the vagus nerve can transmit molecules like alpha-synuclein and other molecules that have been implicated as having a causative role in Parkinson's in the brain. There's a lot of questions about how this, how this works and what all the mechanisms are, but there's very interesting data that alpha-synuclein produced in the gut travels up the vagus nerve to produce neuronal, neuronal damage, death, in the substantia nigra and in the, in the, in the dopaminergic system in the brain. So that's a great example of a, of a clinical correlate that has led to active and ongoing work. It's in the context of, of other inflammatory conditions like colitis, uh, work out of Canada some years ago out of Hamilton, Ontario, showed that cutting the vagus nerve in mice enhanced the, the damage that occurred when, when the mice were then subjected to colitis. And so that makes sense in the context of what we were talking about, the vagus nerve sending inhibitory signals to inflammation. 
And that makes sense in the context of stimulating the vagus nerve to prevent inflammation. And, and the question then comes, well, why didn't the patients with all those vagotomies for, and pyloroplasties for ulcer disease in the past, you know, did they have excess burden of, of inflammatory conditions like colitis? Because no one has, has reported that. It, it turns out if you follow those mice for more than six or eight weeks, they, they recover, they lose that predisposition to colitis. And that makes sense too, because the inflammatory reflex, like everything else in biology, is, is a part of a redundant mechanism. And so damage to the vagus nerve can cause enhanced inflammation. We're seeing that now in long COVID patients. But whether, whether there's an accommodation or a correction or a persistence, that, that's still being studied. So it's a fascinating area. I agree with you. Truly is. Um, and that's a nice segue because some more recent work by you looked at how the brainstem dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus speaks to the abdomen. Can you dig into that for us and, uh, and follow it through into relevance to clinical medicine? I actually, just to go back to your, your prior comment, you know, when I was busily doing vagotomies and, you know, highly selective vagotomies, never once crossed my mind, oh my goodness, primum non noceri, right? Firstly, do no harm. I never thought that maybe we're impacting the incidence of neurological disease in these patients. Truly fascinating. Anyway, brainstem dorsal motor nucleus. Having considered this inflammatory reflex as an arc, we, we, we wanted to move up the chain from the nature of the incoming signals into the brain to the next part of the black box or in the equation, which is what does the brain do? How does the brain process the incoming signals? And that's an area of, of active research in my lab as we speak. We're looking at the neural circuits that, that connect the incoming inflammation information to the outgoing signals that we know the vagus nerve can activate to inhibit inflammation. Now, the vagus nerve, the outgoing nucleus of the vagus nerve, the motor nucleus of the vagus nerve is classically referred to as the dorsal motor nucleus and or the nucleus ambiguous. Most of the cholinergic input to the vagus nerve resides in the dorsal motor nucleus. There's a very small number of neurons that are clumped together in the brainstem. And so what we did to, to answer the question of the role of those neurons in controlling inflammation was we used a, an amazingly powerful molecular genetic technology called optogenetics. And this work was, was led by my a uh, colleague and partner in the lab for many years, Sangeeta Shivan, and a, a grad student, an MD, PhD grad student, Adam Kressel. And what, what they did was they made a mouse in which the cholinergic neurons expressed a, a light-sensitive channel so that when Adam shined a laser beam on the dorsal motor nucleus of the mice he, he prepared, that the cholinergic neurons the cholinergic neurons in the dorsal motor nucleus of the mouse would fire. And then that enabled him to flash a laser light on the brainstem and activate just the cholinergic neurons in the dorsal motor nucleus and follow the signals all the way down the vagus nerve by recording the spikes. And what he found is that firing these cholinergic neurons in the dorsal motor nucleus with a laser beam, which is highly selective, activated the production of compound action potentials in the vagus nerve all the way down to the abdomen. And they, these signals then crossed into 
the splenic nerve. Now, that's a nerve that arises in a, a ganglion complex called the celiac superior mesenteric ganglion, which is a sort of like a router in the abdomen. The, the splenic nerve that arises in that ganglia is the primary nerve to the spleen. And it's, it's in the textbooks, it's called a sympathetic nerve because it, it uses norepinephrine as a neurotransmitter. But what Adam showed is that this parasympathetic vagus nerve using acetylcholine as the neurotransmitter controlled the activity of the sympathetic nerve, the splenic nerve. And that activity inhibited the production of cytokines in the spleen. So connecting these dots has been amazing because the textbooks say that the vagus nerve, the parasympathetic nervous system doesn't control the sympathetic nervous system. But we proved in this case that it does, that overturns that dogma. And to make it even more interesting, the neurotransmitter in the spleen, norepinephrine, actually controls an immune cell subset that we discovered that we call CHAT T cells because they make acetylcholine. So the, the, the final neurotransmitter in the equation that turns off the inflammation in the spleen is acetylcholine. So it, it's been an amazing um, mechanism to reveal. It's very intricate. Vagus nerve signaling arising in the dorsomotor nucleus of the brainstem, a few neurons, is massively amplified to inhibit the production of cytokine storm throughout the whole spleen by going through the vagus nerve to the splenic nerve to a T cell to acetylcholine. It's, it, it's truly fascinating. And given what you said at the beginning and given the enormous body of uh, your work, can you see a day where bioelectronic implants or stimuli delivered non-invasively might replace pharmaceutical drugs, certainly in inflammatory disease or other diseases? What are your thoughts? Yes. I do see that day coming. And I'm very quick to add that, as you ma made allusion to earlier in the podcast, there's no one size fits all ever in medicine. But I believe there will be some patients who will be able to have either a teeny chip inserted under the skin in an outpatient procedure uh, or have a non-invasive device transmitting signals through the skin and these devices in some patients will obviate the need for them to ever have to take drug again for the condition for which they've been taking drugs. Uh, I also believe that, that it won't work in everybody. There will be patients uh, either because we don't understand the condition they have or because the, uh, their nervous system is different in some way or because uh, they will be refractory for other mechanisms we don't understand. But even in those patients, it's possible, and we've seen this already, that adding a bioelectronic treatment may enable them to now become responsive to drugs they were previously refractory to. We've seen that already. And I also believe that it will disrupt the current, I'm quite confident actually, that when these things come to pass, they will be very disruptive to the current pharmaceutical industry. But I also believe that the pharmaceutical industry will, will join in this because uh, I've spoken to many senior executives in many big pharma companies, and they would all agree, I think, with the statement that although right now they're, the main business for big pharma is to produce drugs, they're actually not in the business of producing drugs. They're in the business of producing therapies and, and, and improving lives 
through better treatments. And if the way to do that is through bioelectronic medicine, they will join in the fight. And some of them already have. Um, there are several large pharmaceutical companies that have made enormous investments in the bioelectronic medicine field, which is estimated by some business analysts to already be uh, valued in excess of five or $6 billion. So the future is, to me, is clear. It's coming. Um, what I don't know, of course, is how long it will take, but it's coming. Yeah, I would suggest um, there's already signs that it's here. I mean, you know, the the indications that you've made about um, about inflammation, what we've already seen in epilepsy, in in spine, in incontinence, in Parkinson's disease, um, and it, I absolutely it absolutely fascinates me, and I love I love it, you know, to. I'm not a I'm not a religious man, but there's a quote from the Bible by Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. People have been suggesting this for a long, long time. If you were to do a horizon scan of this field, Kevin, what's out there that might change or save a life? What what other work is being done at someone else's lab that has you really excited? The thing that will save lives first will be the use of vagus nerve stimulation to treat inflammation whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, multiple sclerosis. Uh, it's quite clear that we understand those mechanisms in animals. And what's happening now are not scientific challenges. They're clinical development and business challenges. And it's happening and it's going really well. So I think that the first major impact and benefits to that will be in those conditions of autoimmunity and autoinflammation. So I'm very, very excited about that. After 30 years, this story will become an overnight success. There's a number of other important conditions that are, I would say, right, coming right behind that. There's been a lot of work and interest in using bioelectronic strategies, invasive and non-invasive, non-invasive techniques using ultrasound, which we've We've done extensive work in a, in a very important collaboration with GE over many, many years. We've published several papers now on that, looking at diabetes. And it's possible to, to target the glucose-sensitive neurons in the porta hepatis of the liver using focused ultrasound and stimulate the uh, reduction of serum glucose in, um, in animals and in patients. And the same mechanism can be applied to the spleen to the splenic nerve to inhibit the production of cytokines. There's been a lot of work done by uh, Hubert Lim at the Mayo Clinic looking at this as well, fantastic uh, studies that he's reported. So that's, that's happening as we speak in real time using focus ultrasound. There's a tremendous interest in the cancer universe in going after bioelectronic strategies in a new field that's been called cancer neuroscience. And this is the idea that cancer requires the many cancers require input from stromal cells, which are innovated. And it's possible to change the metabolism or cell biology of a stromal cell by changing the neural input. Other cancers utilize inflammatory mechanisms to grow or metastasize. And we've talked about inflammation. It's possible to hack into neural circuits to modulate inflammation in cancer. And there's even evidence from several labs published in some of the world's best journals that direct neural input from adrenergic and cholinergic nerves to breast and prostate cancer 
can enhance the growth of the cancer or enhance the metastatic potential. So there you have a directly testable hypothesis that interacting with direct neural input to cancer may have an impact on cancer. And there's incredibly exciting work going on in, in Alzheimer's disease and neurodegeneration. So the list is, Jonathan, the list is long. Um, there's a lot of work in this space and it's moving quickly in some cases towards clinical testing. I first played with this space with some collaborators from the States and, uh, and in, in London at UCL many, many years ago to look at function of the anal sphincter and, and published on it, in, in fact, donkeys years ago. And to see that the work that is done in, in my field now with sacral nerve stimulation to give people back their dignity and their continence is, is amazing. Kevin, if you could invent a lamp or maybe even just find one that when polish would release a magical genie who could grant you three wishes to improve the, the area of work that you do or anything else, frankly, what would they be? The first would be that there are no more impediments to the deployment of a bioelectronic strategy that helps a lot of people. People, people with severe inflammatory conditions to start are, are suffering. They don't like the medications that we have made available to them so far. They're looking for alternatives. And my first hope would be that bioelectronic medicine becomes an alternative that makes people feel better. My second wish would be that this story inspires more brilliant young people to pursue a path of research in, in this and in related fields. There's been a, a cultural shift and, a, and there's, I understand that there's lots of good reasons. There's been a cultural shift away from the best and brightest young people around the world, not just in the United States, pursuing careers in, that combine research and, and, and the clinic. And we need more of that. So my second wish would be that more people are inspired to do that because it's the most noble career anyone could ever have. And it's what the world needs. And it's the, it's the best of the, and it's, it's the best combination of, of compassion and serving humanity with creativity and innovation and, and personal, personal satisfaction. And my third wish would be that there's a reinvestment in that space by, by governments, whether it's in Europe or the United States or, or Asia or anywhere, and that we, we form consensus to prioritize research investments so that we're better prepared for the next pandemic. There will be another one. It will come. And my wish is that government provides leadership at many levels so that we can actually learn from the last pandemic and not go through the next one in the same disorganized fashion. Well, those are pretty powerful wishes. And if, uh, if you get to play any point in, in addressing these issues, I'm sure solutions will be found more rapidly. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank you, Professor Kevin Tracy, for taking the time to share your insights on so many amazing topics. And frankly, for all you have done and are continuing to do to advance medical science, you are an utter inspiration. Jonathan, thank you for your kind words. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to speak with you, and I hope to speak to you again sometime. 
Absolutely. Well, folks, please uh, join us again next week for another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. Uh, Dig into the archives. There's plenty of fabulous episodes there. And tell your friends and colleagues about us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.